really what you're looking at is a stepwise progression of conflict. And every time someone tries to collaborate, mm-hmm. you know, and get together and form a plan, do you know some kind of group that is going to study a problem and then try to solve it, it has this unintended consequence of spinning off into other new conflicts in different places. And what's happening is during the course of this period we call the Timber Wars is that there's a vigorous debate going on, not necessarily about salmon or spotted owl, but about who, where, how, and why uh, these forests and these lands, landscapes, can be used and you know to what purpose. And, that, and that's really this the central argument and what continues to this day, right? Hello and welcome to Your Wild Place, a podcast about the wild people and places of North Idaho and Montana. I'm your host, Jack Peterson. Today we're talking to Zach Hagedon, the editor-in-chief of the Sandpoint Reader. In early June, the Reader published the second of a planned three-part series of articles on the history of timber management in our region and the fierce conflict that erupted over land-use policy differences that eventually came to be known as the Timber Wars. As commonly understood, the Timber Wars were primarily legal and physical conflicts over old-growth forest in Washington and Oregon, but Battle lines were drawn everywhere that timber was a part of the landscape or economy of a place, including our area, North Idaho and Western Montana. Hagedon points out that thinking of the timber wars so narrowly is misleading. To really understand what was going on, you have to understand decades of land use policy going back at least to the turn of the 20th century. The sharp conflict on the West Coast has been well-documented, but understanding that broader history is the goal of this conversation. We focus on the more recent of the two parts of the saga that Hagedon has published so far, which includes the shocking changes of the 80s and 90s, but begins all the way back in the middle of the 20th century as America and the world emerged from World War II. That's where our conversation picks up. Here's Zach Hagedon. All right, yeah, so World War II, as we all know, looking at sort of the broad sweep of American history, is a real critical turning point for a lot of things. Um, everything changes from top to bottom uh, after, after World War II. And one of those big changes that occurred was uh, you have this giant population of service members coming back from the war. Uh, They've been given a lot more financial support than veterans of previous wars had received. And what they want to do is settle down and they want to start families and they want to build homes and they have a lot more mobility than previous generations had. I mean, this is the the first generation of the automobile uh, culture. So you have this giant demographic shift that occurs all over the country with people moving out to the suburbs, the creation of the suburbs, really. Uh, And consistent with this boom was a huge need for timber. Now, timber hadn't really been cut a whole lot uh, (laughs) in in the previous decade. Uh, During the Depression, of course, everything was, was well depressed. So... The, the industry itself was still kind of recovering from that depression era, um, you know, economic collapse. 
And timber being an important commodity all the time wasn't necessarily the most important commodity during World War II, uh, you know, for the war effort itself. Sure, yeah. Uh, that said, a lot of the big timber companies had already sort of exhausted their private holdings in previous decades. Then suddenly here comes this boom. So the timber industry was caught a little bit off guard is, is the way I think you might consider thinking about it. Uh, they were in a position where they were still recovering from the Depression. Their private holdings had already been sort of cut over. And then, wham, 1945, here comes however many hundred thousand people with money in their pockets, gas in their tanks, and they want to build a home. And they want to live wherever they want to live. So there's a huge crunch to get all this timber out onto the market and to get these homes built. And it becomes politically very important to get behind what they called, you know, getting out the cut. That was the mm-hmm. phrase they used. So um, it, it was like the rallying cry, like, you know, we got to, we had the arsenal of democracy during World War II to defeat the Nazis. Now we need sort of the arsenal of domesticity. We got to marshal all of our resources to, to provide this new American way of life now that we're the rulers of the world. So politically, there's a lot of pressure on the public lands because the public lands the Republic. They were set aside at the beginning of the 20th century and the late uh, 19th century. They were set aside specifically as a reserve of timber. And now there's a need, a perceived need to dip into that reserve. And you've got politicians who are just making hay out of this, you know, saying like, it's un-American not to use these public lands, you know, open up the public lands, let us get in there, let's start cutting. And there's any sort of conservation ethic, any sort of conservation argument gets sort of blown out of the water. Mm-hmm. by this real intense need to get out the cut. And there was no arguing with it. Yeah, everybody wants to build a home, and most of them want to build it out of wood. Uh, <laughs> to this day, you generally still need a two-by-four to put a house together. So uh, it makes sense to me. So that's what was driving the pressure, and how did that pressure? Uh, how was that pressure released? Well, uh, you do, I, I should kind of, qualify a little bit with what I said. I mean, mm-hmm. conservation ideas didn't necessarily disappear during that time. To answer your question, the, pr- the pressure on these reserves was released by opening the reserves and, and allowing timber companies to go in there and start logging on public lands. There were people who were very opposed to this. So conservation ideas still continued. They were just being sort of drowned out, you know, by, by the fervor to get out the cut. Um, you've got people like uh, you know, Robert Marshall, um, who had been a really strong voice for what one of the sources in my in my story, Adam Sowards, he's a professor at University of Idaho, uh, described as an almost socialized timber policy. It would have been mm. revolutionary. It would have uh, you know it, it would have federally regulated regulated all sales of all timber everywhere, including on private land. So that was an idea that was floating around in the forties. And, and this is Robert Marshall, right? Who's the Bob in the Bob Marshall Wilderness? I mean, he was not some sort of sideline crank. He was a, a respected member of, you know, the timber policy setting community. I mean, he worked for the Franklin Roosevelt administration. Um, so that kind of gives you an indication of how, how varied the opinions were about what to do amid this boom. You know, you've got, you've got the intense political pressure to get out the cut, but you also have people like Bob Marshall who are saying, you know, not only don't get out the cut, but regulate everything yeah. that happens you know, on, on the timber lands. And then in communities like like Sandpoint and you know Bonner County that relied had and had relied on timber for almost the entirety of their of their existence uh, they were very eager to join in this boom because places like Sandpoint where the mills had really struggled through the depression 
and we had been a single resource community mm-hmm. for so long that when those mills suffered in the depression and then during you know the downturn during world war ii the prospect of getting to reopen all these mills and get all these people back to work was very very attractive so you got a lot of pressure from the top from sort of uh, political leaders and congressional leaders because i mean don't forget that the national forests are technically owned by uh, congress i mean they're, they're owned yeah. by the people of the united states but congress gets to determine what happens with them so you've got all this pressure from congress coming from the top and you got all this pressure coming from the bottom, from you know communities, lumbering communities that were desperate to get this cash commodity back yeah. into their economy and, and and see another boom time in their towns after you know ten, fifteen, sometimes twenty years of economic disaster. Thinking about those two pressure points, right? You know, the pressure from the top and the pressure from the bottom. The Forest Service, being sort of the the national steward of these federal lands, is caught in the middle, and it has a it has a mandate that goes back to you know, 1905. You know, the, it's supposed to sort of act as a steward of these lands. It's, it's having to, to deal with a lot of this stuff, and it's it's opening up areas very strategically. So sort of outskirts, sort of like the, the nibbling at the edges of, of some of these public lands. We're not talking about going into, you know, like Yosemite or something. Sure. Right, but... But they're definitely trying to be strategic about where they're allowing these timber harvests to occur because they don't want a return to the early 20th century where uh, the mentality was what is referred to as cut and run. Companies would come in, individuals would even come in, and they would buy a big chunk of land and they would just cut everything down, like completely denude the area, sell off the lumber, and then move on to the next piece. There was no thought to any sort of conservation whatsoever. And that's really where the Forest Service came from. And... uh, so they're, they're thinking back on this longer history. It's like you know, this, this, uh, this department was created specifically so that we don't have cut and run anymore. So now we're going to manage how and where you can cut and how much you can cut and when and who gets to do it and all this kind of thing. Well, this is really, really annoying to, to people who are just like champing at the bit to get into the forest and to cut it all down. And so by the 50s, you know, so we, we've had maybe five, six, seven years of this boom. Uh-huh. Um, so by that sort of early 50s, mid-50s period, um, you start seeing things pop up in like our community of newspaper here in Sandpoint. And I, I found a couple of really strident articles where this one particular columnist... Um, this would be Jim Parsons? Jim Parsons, yes. Yeah. Jim, Jim Parsons. Uh-huh. Well, he, he, was a, he was a very strong voice in the local paper. What I find so fascinating about his arguments throughout sort of 1951 to 1957 were the ones that I was able to find in the archives... Um, is the argument he's making is identical to the argument that you hear today from certain more, like I would even say, sort of extreme conservative uh, politicians? And you know, he's he's making statements in his column in you know the, in the fifties, saying things you know about how you know there is no reason whatsoever that we shouldn't be able to just charge onto any of our public lands and do whatever we want with them. Like there's no way the government should be able to tell us this. You know, if, if the government thinks they can run our public lands, they need to revol- devolve that authority back down to the states to, you know, to let local communities make these decisions. And this is completely antithetical to the entire structure of the national forest system and, mm. and to everything that had happened with forest management from probably the 1910s huh. till that point. So he's sort of just like throwing almost 50 years worth of established <laughs> policy and politics out the window and envisioning this really sort of laissez-faire, almost libertarian land policy. And, and, and we're seeing a return to that now, which I find very interesting, is that there's a very strong call for the government, the federal government, to return public lands to the states. And what, what 
Jim Parsons and the people today who make this argument forget, however, is that those lands never belong to the states. They, they always belong to the federal government. So it's not a returning of anything, but that's sort of an inconvenient truth, I think, to that argument. One of the things that I found really intriguing in, in researching this topic was, was the idea that sort of in the 50s, during this time period when people like Jim Parsons and, and little old Sandpoint were sort of demanding to be given full access to do whatever they wanted on the public lands, um, there was sort of on the side of all these arguments, so away from the congressional pressure mm-hmm. coming down to get out the cut and mm-hmm. away from the pressure from below, from lumbering communities to you know open the doors, let us in, let us do what we need to. There was this sort of other through line, which uh, I came to sort of think about as um, aspirational managerialism. You know, it was this uh, this notion of we can do everything for everybody from a management perspective. Sort of trying to find the middle way between all these competing interests and ideologies. And it came in part, you know, from forest service managers, but um, but in talking with Adam Sowards from U of I, you know, he, he put a really fine point on it. He says, you know, think about the time period in which this is happening. You know, worked out the depths of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And America is feeling like it's riding pretty high globally we're you know we we can we can beat the russians you know we can do all these wonderful things we can build these great technologies we can provide you know all these incredible appliances we can build giant highways like we can do the same thing with forests like we can manage them to the greatest possible good for every interest and no one's gonna lose everyone's gonna win um yeah i mean it's like it's aspirational management there it's like this glorious cold war notion of the 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 technocrat will get us there yes you know we need to get away from these passionate whatever arguments and just you know scientifically manage all this stuff and then put your arms around the entire concept and then we'll we'll chunk it out and we'll make everybody happy uh this this has a little bit also there's some shades of kind of the new deal to this sort of thinking as well and as we get into sort of the early 60s and people are starting to really kind of think about how the country is going to develop further. You have this managerial concept, but you also have this sort of notion that we need to kind of reform the country a little bit going into the sixties. And one of the other interesting little aspects that occurred during this time was with, um, uh, Frank church. Tell us a little bit about, uh, Frank church before you go sure. further. Well, Frank church was probably the most, famous senator we've had in Idaho other than, uh, you know, William Bora. Um, he's, I think, probably most famous for his hearings on the CIA, where he, uh, where he sort of took the CIA to task for its excesses. Um, but he was also a very passionate, conservation-minded person. I mean, he was one of these sort of old-school Idaho conservationist types, sort of the, the outdoors person, you know, the hunter, the angler. Um, but he also was very much in the spirit of the Franklin Roosevelt New Dealer type idea. And when he looked around at what was going on with the forests and with the country in general, uh, sort of in 1959, um, he said, you know, what we need to do is we need to revive a conservation corps because the Civilian Conservation Corps during the New Deal was arguably the most successful project in the New Deal, even though it didn't last all that long. It probably did more good literally on the ground, but also in terms of PR and in like citizen engagement and anything else. Uh, and when it went away, um, a lot of these communities in which, in which it worked, including places like Sandpoint, I mean, Idaho had some, had one of the most 
one of the largest numbers of CCC camps anywhere in the country. North Idaho in particular uh, had a huge CCC presence. So this was a very attractive idea to bring this back um, to, to a lot of people. And Church gets together with um, Hubert Humphrey, who later became the vice president, or Lyndon Johnson. And they come up with this idea for a youth conservation corps. And it's going to do a lot of the same things that the CCC did. It's going to get young people out of their inner cities. It's going to get them into the woods. It's going to teach them life skills. It's going to teach them how to you know, work hard. But it's also going to do things like stream reclamation. It's going to do trail maintenance. So in, in many ways, it's a retread of the CCC. And that's another strain of this thinking, is that we need to leverage our forests to social good. So it's no. not just economics. Like there, There's a social component to this always. What's most interesting about that to me is that I had never even heard of that before I read it in your article. That's that seems like an undiscovered little bit of history that you've stumbled across there because right. I that's something that's right up my uh, alley anyway. Something I would be very interested in and never even heard of it. I had never heard of it either, and in fact, I found it by accident, as you often do when you're doing archival research i was just scrolling through old newspapers and i saw this headline that mm-hmm. said something and frank church's name caught my eye and then of course the initials ycc i was like what is that so i started reading more about it and it, yeah it it illustrates that there was this still this old strain of conservation thinking that it could be used for social good as much as economic or ecological good of course in that climate you know of getting out the cut didn't go anywhere Despite the fact that Eleanor Roosevelt herself wrote in in support during the congressional hearings, although it did, you know, sort of postscript, it evolved into the Job Corps. This was the origination of the Job Corps, uh, and it was Johnson who sort of brought it back and then reformatted it and whatever. So, so with the big boom and people are seeing these public lands getting nibbled away and nibbled away, the appetite, of course, is always to get out the cut, but there is still a growing sense is like, well, we need to start putting some, some actual laws in place if we're going to manage in this way. Cause it, it was a, it was a form of management that we had not embarked on before. So you basically, you get about 10 to 15 years of kind of, they get to do whatever they want to do within the forest service uh, purview. And then it's like, well, we need to get serious about regulating some of these things. So mm-hmm. you get stuff like, uh, you know, the wilderness act. And it, it does, it puts in some protections uh, for forest lands, and it kind of paves the way for this whole raft of other legislation. And really, you can look at the 60s and, you know, around the time of the death of John F. Kennedy and the assassination of John F. Kennedy, there's a real flurry that occurs right around then. Mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson comes in and enacts all of these different environmental laws. Richard Nixon, one of the, one of the most powerful you know, environmental presidents we've had. Uh, so that's, that's really... A turning point, I think, is yeah. right around then in 64 when you start getting the legislative period. Obviously, what was happening is that there was enough cutting going on that people were noticing. And people, the, you know, the, the right people, quote-unquote, that is people with the political power to make changes, were getting dismayed. And one of the things that was, that was occurring that was really dismaying to people was clear-cutting. And I think I mentioned that earlier, you know, the cut-and-run form of, of lumbering that was really prominent during the beginning of the 20th century had gone away by and large but then it seemed to almost be coming back kind of you know pe- people would see these giant clear cuts and it 
even though they may not have even been alive during that time, I mean, nobody likes to look at a clear cut, cut over stump fields and slash piles and all these things. And this is happening on public lands in many cases, you know, so there, right. there's this real sense of affront that this is happening um, on, on what people conceived of as their land, right? And, and in many ways it is. It belongs to all of us. Right. <laughs> so when clear cutting started to become much more prominent sort of in the late 60s and into the 70s, uh, people were just up in arms, you know, living in, living in a community, looking out your window, you know, one day it's this beautiful forested mm-hmm. mountainside. And then a couple of days, maybe a week, however long it takes for the company to come in. Then all of a sudden you're looking at this giant scar. You know? I mean, it, it does grow back, you know, but it takes, a, <laughs> it takes quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, this prompts a fair amount of outrage and a critical thing that happens amid this, this period of lots of environmental legislation um, an increasing environmental sort of ethic mm-hmm. um, is people are now feeling empowered to like do something about it. So it's not just the politicians anymore. It's not just the the managers, right? The bureaucratic mm-hmm. management community. Now citizens are starting to, to say like, look, I mean, I, I don't want to look at clear cuts. I don't want to see, you know, these streams getting polluted by runoff from these blasted mountainsides. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can within the system to, to fight this. And I need to figure out exactly who found this, but someone noticed that there was a act on the books, the Administrative, uh, what was it? The Administrative Procedures Act of 1946. Mm-hmm. Sounds very obscure, mm-hmm. but and, and there's a lot to it. But essentially, what it did was it opened the way for people to sue the federal government. It's, it's a legal shift, allowing the public to formally challenge federal policies, and which didn't exist before 1946. Not, I mean, not formally. No. Yeah. Uh, and this, I think, is a critical, critical moment in the whole story, um, is when you start getting people involved, not just the manager class, not just the politicians, not just the lumber companies, but you start getting average citizens with the avenue to, to look at something that is happening on the land, object to it, and then have a way to fight it in a, in a, in a meaningful way, not just a protest, but to actually bring it into a courtroom. Interesting. The Administrative Procedures Act of 1946. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't widely used until, it, obviously, it didn't immediately have an effect in 1946. If there were uses of it prior to this time period, mm-hmm. uh, they haven't made it into the sort of grand yeah. narrative of, of American history. But yeah. definitely at this point, it was used in lawsuits in western Montana and West Virginia that was related to massive clear-cutting that yeah. happened there. And... This was a major wake-up call to certain people in the industry, to certain people uh. in the government, uh, because prior to all this, I mean, you do a clear-cut, people grumble, get mad, whatever, but you know, they just walk away and just right. deal, deal with it, right? But now, it's like, wow, so we're, we can we can be sued for doing these things <laughs> if people don't like it. Now, yeah. whether or not those lawsuits succeed is another thing, yeah. but the fact that it could happen at all um, was was really kind of threatening I mean, it had to be threatening to people in the, in these boardrooms and in these uh, committee rooms and in in the offices, you know, of the of the Forest Service and whoever else was involved with these projects. So this prompts another piece of legislation, and it gets really hard to keep track of all these all these laws and acts and things that came about during this time period. But the National Forest Management Act of 1976 came as a direct result of those lawsuits in Montana and West Virginia related to clear cutting specifically. And what is the National Forest Management Act of 1976? And what, what, what's the effect of it? Well, it does an awful lot of things, but yeah. <laughs> but as as it pertains to this particular story, um, you know, it, it doesn't uh, outright ban 
clear cuts, uh, but it does put a lot more restrictions on clear cuts and how clear cutting is done, and it and it hamstrings uh, you know the Forest Service a little bit in in how and where it can allow these clear cuts to occur. And again, you know, like I say, it, it didn't didn't make them impossible to do, but it made them smaller. I think they were limited to forty acres. Prior to that, you could do thousand. I mean, whatever whatever was going to be approved by the powers that be was how big your clear cut could be. But under this act, it's like, no. I mean, you can only do, I think it was 40 acres at a time. Uh, and then you have to reforest immediately. So that was, that was a, a very important sort of procedural aspect to it. The other thing was sort of the, the, the PR aspect to it. Clear cutting came out looking just absolutely terrible. I mean, this is, I mean it's, it's a practice that the government now deems necessary to have legislation about. And it empowers groups all over the country who were watching this saying like, okay, we can win these fights. Like if we see something happening on the land that we don't like, we can take them to court. And in this case, we could, I mean, they won and not only did they win, but they got Congress to act mm-hmm. to create, you know, a really big piece of legislation that is going to do a lot of things. It's not just sort of a, you know, an obscure little, you know, bill that kind of goes away and everyone forgets about it. I mean, this is, this is a major piece of legislation. Uh, now there is something that kind of, was uh, one of my sources, John O'Laughlin at the U of I, he's a professor emeritus, and he's actually been involved in some of the policy writing uh, that occurred in the 80s and 90s. But, uh, he, re- he says the National Forest Management Act um, does kind of in a perverse kind of way, in his words, continued uh, the emphasis on clear-cutting. Hmm. <laughs> so it regulates it, manages it, but in a sense, it now, by making 40 acres you know, the maximum you can do, and the reforestation, it's almost like now we're going to do a lot of small clear cutting. Not a lot of 40 acre parcels. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to reforest them. Now we're going to start treating these, these forests as crops that yeah. now are being rotated. And that was not a way that, that lumbering was done prior to this time period. So mm-hmm. while it looks like a huge victory for conservationists, the timber companies find a way to, <laughs> <laughs> to sort of checkerboard these yeah. clear cuts, and then they will come in, clear cut 40 acres, replant, go to this other plot, clear yep. cut that, replant, and then they would go and rotate, literally like a crop. And by the time they were done with all these different 40 acre chunks, they come back to the first one they cut, and it was probably ready to cut again. And it's ready to go again. Yeah. And again, this is a critical, critical moment in the story. Treating public lands and public forests as an economic commodity, as a mm-hmm. crop, was definitely not the intention of a lot of these sort of. Uh, civilian conservation groups that, that brought lawsuits such as the ones in Montana and West Virginia. It was around this time, actually a little earlier, that also the Endangered, Endangered Species Act of 1973 is passed as part of the same, I, seemingly, to, to me, from, you know, from my vantage point in 2022, it seems like as part of kind of the same wave of mid-70s mm-hmm. uh, en- environmental legislation. Uh, the Endangered Species Act of 73 that is at at first blush that seems to have very little to do with uh timber management practice at all but it becomes central to the uh to the timber wars later on as we get into i mean as as we get into what is what is popularly referred to as the timber wars of like the 80s and 90s right and, yeah and that's kind of sort of a little bit of an aside but that's, yeah. that's sort of the the gist, I think, of this whole article series is to 
dispel this notion that the timber wars is a discrete period you know that there, yeah. was, there was something that happened in the 80s and the 90s and then it was over yeah the, i mean it's, the, the, it's the, part of a longer much longer history it's a huge history and, yeah. it, and it's an incredibly complex history and it has all these different pieces and parts and the endangered species act of 73 you're right i mean it didn't necessarily deal with timber in 73 and it didn't necessarily deal with timber in 76 you know when when the you know the act came out but what it did was it added another piece to the complex picture of how to manage lands in general, how to manage resources in general. And really by the 70s, by the by sort of the end of the 70s, when you have the tail end of all this different legislation and you've got, you know, this massive lawsuit in 76, you know, that results in this, in this act, the National Forest Management Act, um, that managerial culture, that aspirational manager type, that was clearly not working. Like things were way too complicated. And now you bring all this public involvement in and you bring these lawsuits in. This is where you really start to see uh, management of some of these lands transitioning away from Congress, you know, from committee rooms and boardrooms and bureaucratic offices. Management's not occurring there anymore. Oftentimes it's occurring in the courts. And judges are now starting to determine you know, what happens on the land based on what kinds of lawsuits people are going to file leveraging which kind of legislation they're going to, they're going to leverage. And by the time you get into sort of the eighties, um, you know, which is getting close to that sort of what we consider the timber wars, the endangered species act finds its way into the debate around the spotted owl, the spotted owl, the infamous spotted owl. Would you explain then what, uh, why the spotted owl was such a central figure? <clears throat> the spotted owl. I mean, anyone who anyone who's grown up here or lived here for a long time or, or was around during that time period will will know that the spotted owl is basically the symbol of of what we call the timber wars and of the timber politics of that era. And it's a it's a very small bird. It lives in very specific places uh, along sort of the west coast range up into Canada, a little bit in, um, I think it's New Mexico, but it, it lives essentially in temperate rainforests, big, big old growth trees. They're very sensitive, um, to any disruption in their environment. They need large ranges, uh, in which to live. So what happened was that sort of nibbling that had been occurring around the edges of public lands for, you know, by this point in, you know, the early eighties decades, um, had now started to dig into some of these areas that were very sensitive and it was disrupting habitats for some of these kinds of creatures. And people were very upset that old growth timber, especially in Oregon and Washington. See, I, I didn't dig too deep into this particular part of the history because I was focused on Idaho. And that's, it's been well, well documented as yeah, well. It yeah. has been very well documented. Uh-huh. And, uh, so I'm going to be a little bit surface here when it comes to, right. But just for was, those who aren't familiar, yeah, for, I guess. So yeah. what was, what was happening in Oregon and Washington was people were looking at some of these, uh, some of these landscapes with these incredibly ancient trees mm-hmm. that were being cut down or, or lands nearby them yeah. were being cut. And they, they were mostly concerned with the trees and they were trying to find something to do. Like they, they were trying to find a way to leverage against these timber companies that were going into some of these old growth places in, in Oregon and Washington and California, I should add as well, uh, trying to find a way to get that into court. And, they hunted around, they hunted around, and they found the Endangered Species Act of 1973. And they said, well, we need to find an animal that we can use uh, to, to leverage against this practice in the old growth forest. And, they, and somebody found the spotted owl. 
So the spotted owl was not really the point. Oftentimes, especially during that time period, I remember personally growing up here in, in Sandpoint in the 80s and 90s. My dad was a mill worker at the time. And I remember people just hated spotted owls. Like, hated them. I, I don't remember... I can't think of another animal in my life that has been more hated than the spotted owl. And it was it was just absurd. I mean, I remember thinking it was absurd back then. You know, and I'm like 10 years old or whatever. But um, the spotted owl became the, this, the symbol for for this whole complex of ideas. But it was never about the owl. It was about the big trees. It's worth emphasizing, I guess, that, yeah, the, the owl was really incidental. I mean, it, it, they, it, it, the lawsuit was about the owl because the goal was to protect the trees. Yeah. I mean, it was... It, and the ecosystems, you know, that, yeah, the, 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 the trees are a part of and, and really the forest, uh, determine yeah, the forest in, in many general. cases. Um, but, the, but it could have been... It, it, it didn't have to be the owl. It could have been anything. It was just the owl is what they found. Well, in mm-hmm. other, place, other places had, had experienced something similar types of things. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there's a dam in, uh, I think it was Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, that people opposed the dam. Yeah, and they were trying to find a way to oppose it, and they found this little fish, the snail darter, and they said, you know, we have to protect the snail darter. It's an endangered species. Interesting. You can't build this dam. It's not like the spotted owl was the first time this ever happened. It was just the most public. I mean, that was one dam, but with the spotted owl, this could potentially affect an enormous amount of landscape. And when you look at the spotted owl range, like I was mentioning earlier, I mean, it goes Uh from like British Columbia all the way down the west coast down California and then there's this strange little sort of dog leg that goes into New Mexico. I don't know why they, I don't know why they live in either temperate rainforests or New Mexico. Right, but, yeah. But I'm I'm no ornithologist. But uh, so so the, the spotted owl as a as a political wedge, as a legal tool was much more threatening to the timber companies. Um and in in many way in many ways to the managerial folks. I mean, how are you going to manage these lands if if, if they're going to be completely locked up, you know, because of the Endangered Species Act. So there was some fear among people who were, who were holding up the spotted owl as their avatar that it was going to backfire and it was going to sort of undo a lot of what they had tried to do before yeah. and what they had already accomplished. Right. It was controversial even on the conservationist side. Mm-hmm. That it might, yeah, it might be so, um, uh, it, it may end up being costly and, and actually, you know, cause the envi- the Endangered Species Act to be, you know, repealed or or to no longer be a popular uh, law amongst mm-hmm. the general populace, if that's the yeah if that's the way it's being used. And and, and that was definitely how it was perceived by some people. I mean, mm-hmm. the the anti environmentalist quote unquote of that mm-hmm. time period would would look to this and say, you know, this is this is completely disingenuous. Um, you're going to lock up all the forests in the country as you can find something endangered everywhere. And it used to be sort of like this tone of derision it was like oh no you can't you, you can't go to this lake you know because there's some snail that lives in it and yeah you can't go to this mountain because there's some snake you know uh-huh. and people would this, this was like a, a sort of a constant narrative that people would would take if they were opposed to conservation methods yeah however um you know the spotted owl was there to stay they didn't i mean they didn't throw it away they didn't tr- switch gears uh yeah. you know certain groups in Oregon, Washington, California, went full forward with just a raft of lawsuits related to the spotted owl and timber harvesting in those areas. Yeah. And it brought timber sales in those areas to almost a standstill in the late 80s and the early 90s. And people were getting really 
physical about their opposition to these to these timber operations and they were mm. climbing into trees you know this is this is sort of the popular image of of the timber wars is you know people tree sitting people driving metal spikes into trees you know so that when the yeah. chainsaws would hit it the chain would shear off and people sabotaging trucks and bulldozers and laying down like sinking pieces of concrete into the ground and then chaining themselves to the concrete to block logging roads building makeshift forts you know mm-hmm. stuff like that so this was like the, the moment of the most sort of danger uh, to life and limb was during that period. And we had a new president came in in the early 90s, Bill mm-hmm. Clinton, who, when he gets into office, looks around and says, this is like, we cannot have this going on. We've got to, first of all, we have to get timber harvest, timber harvesting back on. You know, it's America and we got to build. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but we also have to deal with this environmental aspect. So we need, we need to address the spotted owl issue. And that's what he does very early on in his administration. Um, he brings together all of his top cabinet officials. He brings Al Gore, the vice president, famous for his conservation-mindedness, uh, brings all these heavy hitters to Portland, Oregon, which at that time was not hip. <laughs> and it was not nearly as big as it is today. Uh, brings them all together in Portland for a timber summit to sort of figure out what we're going to do about this issue and how are we going to you know, satisfy all these different needs and how are we going to stop people from timber striking and how i mean we got to figure this out i am not aware of of this ever happening really in any other in that administration or in any other administration where president vice president and a big chunk of the cabinet leaves washington dc and goes to a specific area of the country sure it's a little bit of a publicity stunt but actually to go to where there is a problem and we're, <laughs> we're going to sit down and we're going to address it with the local community. Here, yeah. you know, here comes the federal government, the top brass in person. Uh, you know, here comes Marine One. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, like, I, I can't think of that ever happening any other time. It, it was a big deal. It was, yeah. it was a big deal then, and it remains a big deal, you know, when you, when you think about what it represented. Um, and and it, was a, it was publicity, sure. But Clinton was very, very clear that this was a huge priority for him very early on in his presidency. And a lot of his aides were not pleased with him for doing this. Um, they thought he was over-promising, like, disastrously so, and especially mm-hmm. so early in his, mm-hmm. in his administration. It's like, you cannot fly in here, you know, like Superman, and promise that you're going to solve this problem that's really been going on for decades with one big, you know, let's get together and talk about it meeting. Uh, but he was confident that he could do it. What came out of that was the Northwest Forest Plan, of 1994 um and it really was transformative uh it may not have been transformative in the ways that its supporters wanted but that's the way it goes with all these things if, i mean it, it did so many things but really if you want to kind of think of it in a thumbnail form uh it was survey and manage was the new strategy so you would go to a piece of land you would survey it and then you would manage it based on its local conditions as opposed to these blanket sort of notions. I mean, you would, you would look at a huge chunk of, of land and you would say, well, this is forest land. We're going to manage it this way. It could be 10,000 square acres. Well, this is saying like, no, no, no. We need to get in there and look at everything that's going on and then manage appropriately for those areas. And this is meant to sort of like carve out the spotted owls, you know, in a sense. And like say, okay, well, look, here's, here's where the spotted owls live. Don't cut there. But it also says, 
well, we need to start looking at all the other endangered species so we don't run into this problem again. So it's like, where do all the weird snails live? Like, <laughs> figure out where they live. Yeah. Can't cut there. Like, yeah. uh, as John O'Laughlin that I interviewed uh, put it, he says, uh, uh, you have to protect every plant and animal in these forests, not just those that are threatened and endangered, all the slugs and bugs as well. And that was sort of, you know, the, the slugs and bugs, period. So this was this was a major major effort to to address the Endangered Species Act sort yeah. of component of this in a, in a sense maybe to and I, I, this may be my own interpretation I don't know but it seems to me that thinking politically if you go this extra mile and a half protect endangered species what you're really trying to do is take the Endangered Species Act out of the equation so it can't be used oh interesting yeah as a cudgel because yeah. then you say well look we have the Northwest Forest Act. Uh, Northwest Forest Management Act, we have this in place. You cannot use the Endangered Species Act against us anymore because we've addressed this. And that could just be me interpreting that, but... It seems reasonable. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Clinton's plan... I mean, Clinton's goal was to put the issue to bed. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, he did not want these... did not want the timber wars continuing in the courts or, uh, or the physical, actual confrontations that were happening out on the west coast right it looked terrible yeah. for his administration to have people you know chaining themselves to c- cement blocks and attacking right. bulldozers and then and then at the same time no timber coming out of the northwest and i mean this yeah. is a disastrous situation yeah and it's all you know this, this owl was in the middle of it right mm-hmm. so, <laughs> so so we got to figure out how to break the log jam you know to, so to speak and and the northwest forest plan did that uh, but again as everything in this story it had mm-hmm. massive unintended consequences um so with this survey and manage thing, it it provided a path forward for harvesting of timber within a certain framework. However, it made it difficult, harder than it had been before. Timber companies, like any company, they're there to maximize profit, right? So they're starting to look at these forests in sort of the north, into the west coast, and sort of the the more rain temperate rainforest areas of the northwest, and saying like, "What's this not worth it? Like, why are we?" I mean, why are we up here at all? There's trees other places too. And there starts to become a concern to the east, so in Idaho, places like Idaho and Montana, uh, that the timber companies are no longer going to be satisfied working west of the of the Cascades, right? They're going to push the demand for all these harvests east into their states. So now it's like, well, some this management uh, process has gone on over here. Now we're going to start having to deal with these kinds of things over in our neck of the woods. And this is where we get uh, the Inter-Columbia Basin Ecosystem Management Project, which (laughs) I I prefer uh, J. O'Laughlin's acronym for ICBAMP. ICBAMP. Okay. ICBAMP. And this is similar to the Northwest Forest Plan. It's basically an offshoot of the Northwest Forest Plan. But rather than being focused on, you know, those spotted owl country this is focused on uh, east of the Cascades, you know, to Montana, south down to Boise. So really where we live, the Intermountain yeah. West, in a mm-hmm. sense. Uh, and people start looking at that, and they're like, well, you know, we don't, we don't have spotted owls in this country, but what do we have here mm-hmm. on this endangered? And as Olafon puts it to me in, this, in the article, uh, you know, <laughs> we don't have spotted owls, but we have spotted fish. So that, that's the salmon, right? So now the salmon become the central issue in our version of the timber wars uh, in the Intermountain West. And what the spotted fish, you know, the salmon, what they require 
sort of analogous to the spotted owl is you know they they have a range too it's in the river uh but they need buffer zones on either side of the river uh-huh. so this is sort of like their so where the spotted owl needs a big area of land around its nesting you know to thrive the salmon needs a big buffer around the river so now the issue becomes how do we establish buffer zones appropriate buffer zones on either side of these rivers so that we're protecting the salmon based on the endangered species act and then based on you know these other management policies that we have in place so that we yeah. don't get hit with a million lawsuits and we can still have timber harvests because we're still trying to do everything for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting that, yeah, that mindset maintains. Uh, so the, what's the, I guess, what's the result? What is the, the, the plan? What, what is it? BAMP that, <laughs> that well, unfolds? How, how big is the, does the buffer zone end up being? Well, it was 150 feet. Um, but through, you know, rigorous, debate and study and analysis it was increased to 300 feet so it was doubled okay so now 300 feet on either side of a river that is a salmon Mm -hmm. river uh cannot be harvested and the number is kind of interesting to think about here so when that went into place uh it took 10 percent of federal forests in idaho off the table entirely wow so 10% of all the federal forests that could have been logged in prior times was now completely off limits Yeah, because that buffer went from 150 feet to 300 feet. Wild. And now you're sort of setting the stage for more conflict. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing we didn't really touch on yet, and I don't want to belabor you too much here, but no, yeah. uh, the the rare, rare Oh, acts. my goodness. We totally forgot. Yeah. I had it. The roadless area review and evaluation <laughs> process. Which, and there's two of these acts. We have rare and rare two. Yeah, these were kicked off by the Wilderness Act okay. of 64. Uh-huh. Um, and this, I think, has more bearing on places like like North Idaho, you know, um, more remote kind of places. And it doesn't necessarily deal specifically with timber, um, but it does deal with, you know, by its name, roadless areas, um, which are technically, you know, I mean, typically they are regarded as sort of wildlands, right? So what rare, the first, the first one, rare, uh, what it did was it required the Forest Service and other you know land management agencies to survey roadless areas, so mm-hmm. backcountry places, within a period of ten years uh, to come up with recommendations for like a formal wilderness designation. So every ten years, they're supposed to go out to these places that are really hard to get to, and look them over, and then come up with whether or not this should be a designated wilderness. Yeah. Which would, at that point, if it is a designated wilderness, then it's totally off limits to the timber companies. It is to be left alone, and not, and also to be to remain a roadless area. Well, yeah, one they, way of putting they, it, they would yeah. definitely they'd be protected as wilderness areas. Yeah, that's a that's a big thing, and it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to do, as we know. Yeah, <laughs> and and the Forest Service. Uh, I'm going to quote directly from Adam Sowards here from mm-hmm. U of I when I asked him about this. He says, "Well, you know that." The Forest Service should have done this every 10 years, but, you know, quote, the Forest Service did a crappy job. They either didn't do it mm-hmm. or they didn't do it very thoroughly uh, or, you know, any number of things. I mean, w- w- what ended up happening was the conservation groups um, looked at what the F- Forest Service was doing or not doing under rare and decided that, like, they were – it wasn't living up to its mandate. Like, they weren't doing it right. It was, the, the work was not up to snuff. Yeah. So, as as so many other issues during this time period go – uh, these groups, they said, well, I'm taking them to court. So they took them to court. That resulted in Rare 2, the second version of this, which essentially meant that they were the foresters were being told to go back and do your work again. <laughs> and 
this spurred uh, a vigorous debate about how to look at these roadless areas into the future. And U.S. Uh, Idaho U.S. Senator Jim McClure, um, who was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources, so he was in a position of great authority on these issues, uh, he goes around the state in 1983. So we're talking like early 80s is when yeah. this is happening. So he goes around the state in 83 on a listening tour, going to communities and saying, you know, what do you think about this notion of wilderness designation? He, okay. goes, he goes around the state. He goes to Boise, Idaho Falls, Pocatello, Lewiston, and Coeur d'Alene. And he's trying to figure out what people think about this, you know, how these wilderness areas should be, you know, thought about how they should be established or not established. And we have two terms that sort of come out of this. And one is hard release and one mm-hmm. is soft release. Now, the hard release idea is that and this is what McClure favored hard release is that Forest Service is going to go out under rare two going to evaluate these lands figure out which ones should be wilderness they're going to designate them they're going to put them on the books and we're going to walk away from this issue forever we are never going to revisit this you get this one chance to get your wilderness places designations and after that no more do it do it all at once do Mm -hmm. it now and then and soft release, of course, is the is the opposite. You know, we're gonna we're gonna establish wilderness designations as we feel they need to be established in yeah. perpetuity, which is what ended up transpiring. Yeah, I mean that's that's where that's the world we live in now, which is that you, you could, I mean, an, a a place like for example the Scotchman Peaks could become a designated wilderness yeah. uh, at some point in the future. And if McClure yeah. had gotten his way, that that would, that would not be, be the that case. would not be the case. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we would have established all of our wilderness designations during that period. I don't know exactly what the time frame was, but at that time, and then we'd be done. But as it happened, the and this is actually a little bit surprising to me that it shook out this way because, I mean, the timber industry obviously was very, very keen on hard release. Um, McClure being in a powerful position in the Senate on that committee, uh, he was very much in favor of hard release. Well, we, we end up with soft release. Um, well, I should back up just a little bit. I mean, what what the timber executives were looking for and what McClure was looking for and, you know, others who favored hard release was not so much that they didn't like wilderness designations. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure some of them didn't. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of them didn't. Yeah. But I think the bigger issue for them, aside from their personal opinions about wilderness as a concept, mm-hmm. was they wanted security, like long-term security. Yeah. Um, and some stability in what they considered to be their resource. <laughs> and it's really hard to plan long-term, you know, uh, for either policy or for business. Yeah. If a couple of years down the line, some area that you were planning to move into to log suddenly becomes a wilderness, wilderness right? Um, or, is some, or is otherwise taken off the table for some reason, you know, whether it's like a snail darter or a spotted owl or a salmon or, yeah. or, or any number of this constellation of things that, that suddenly – we're standing between timber cutting and, you know, and the companies, which those were barriers they did not have even 30, 40 years before that. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah. and this, this really does. I mean, and so that, that feeling of uncertainty, I think, right. is, is really critical to think about if you're trying to analyze why the timber wars played out the way they did in, the, in this particular time period in the 80s and 90s, is that the timber companies now and the, and the communities, you know, that relied on, on lumbering, we're now feeling very threatened, like they couldn't plan for the future. And that caused tensions to rise pretty pretty strongly. Really what you're looking at is 
a stepwise progression of conflict. And every time someone tries to collaborate, mm-hmm. you know, and get together and form a plan, do you know some kind of group that is going to study a problem and then try to solve it, it has this unintended consequence of spinning off into other new conflicts in different places. And what's happening is, during the course of this period we call the Timber Wars, is that there's a vigorous debate going on, not necessarily about salmon or spotted owl, but about who, where, how, and why uh, these forests and these lands, landscapes, can be used and, you know, to what purpose, right? Um, and that and that's really this, the, the central argument and what continues to this day, right? What is, so what is called the Timber Wars refers to a, a period where, um, which I, I think is distinct, in the fa- in the idea, the idea of people, you know, physic, you know, chaining themselves to things, uh, going into the forest, building, you know, encampments, and uh, spiking trees, as you say, which would be to to drive a metal spike into a tree, which would disable a chainsaw uh, when it when hit, or and kill can, and can inj- yeah can cause injury, um, and so, so thereby making you know logging in that area impossible. Uh, but these these tactics are, w- whether they're new or not, they're certainly not widespread until we get into uh, about the 80s. And right. is there, do you see anything uh, changing either in the makeup of the environmental movement or the attitude in general where, uh, or, or leadership or who knows, where it's uh, suddenly urgent, it's suddenly a matter of life and death that... Uh, that we need to take direct action in the 80s versus, I mean, people have been passionate about this issue or uh, going back to at least when your article series starts in the 1890s, Mm -hmm. you know? So is is there anything different about the character of the uh, conservation movement when it really heats up like that, either the makeup of it or leadership of it that, uh, that makes those tactics suddenly palatable? Ineffective. Yeah, I don't want to spoil too much for the third piece, but yeah. it, I mean, really what's critical to th- think about with that time period is that it's its a flashpoint in what you mm-hmm. can really think about as a as a century and a half long timber war. Uh, it's And the reason that it was the flashpoint that it was is that folks could leverage their outrage legally to make changes to federal policy for the first time. And that goes back to, you know, sort of the, the 70s. And so in terms of the makeup of leadership, I mean, what you ended up having was people who were really good at interpreting the law. I mean, you had conservationists and sort of environmental groups going back all the way to the 10, like 1910s, people who were wilderness movement type people and things Mm -hmm. like that. They generally had a more kind of philosophical view of the value of wilderness and the value of nature. Um, Yeah, it it was much more of a philosophical sort of sort of argument when people start realizing they can get into courtrooms the leadership becomes much more politically savvy much more legally astute a lot more um aggressive and the reason for that is that for the first time they could actually make change so yeah. the wilderness movement people back in the, you know the teens and the 20s and the 30s they didn't have a lot of political clout i mean if they were going to make a change to something they were going to have to appeal to sort of hearts and minds and convince people that this was the right thing to do, you yeah. know, or that it was somehow moral and that kind of thing. Well, these people didn't have to make that argument. 
all they had to do was make a legal argument that would stand up in court and then have the fortitude and you know whatever the, the aggression to push it against well, oftentimes crushing pressure. We're talking about these, these are not like big groups of people. These are like citizen conservation groups. This is not their full-time job in many cases, um, in most cases. They're just citizens who are passionately concerned about protecting these resources, and they're willing to, to stand up to giant federal agencies. They're willing to stand up to huge timber corporations. They're willing to stand up to the government itself. And they're using the courts as their, as their lever. So if there is a change in leadership, it's, it's to that more tactical and you know politically and legally tactical mindset and that's maybe why we think of the timber wars as occurring during that particular time period because that particular time period is when they suddenly got a new weapon in their hands and it was the courts and the courts do respond to these lawsuits during this time period and there are judges who are very sympathetic to their arguments and will shut down timber harvesting or reduce it so low that some of these companies can barely even survive during that time and that's really what leads into sort of the next part is looking at how that period of intense sort of conflict ground some of these communities down, uh, how it played out in some of these communities, whether that tension was felt everywhere the same way. And, you know, spoiler alert, it wasn't. And, but, but how that tension eventually broke and made way for a more collaborative approach because people realized at a certain point that like this is not working like we we cannot continue this way forever it can't always be people in the courtroom fighting about whether or not to open up a certain piece of land they are going to have to work together someday i mean you can't have perpetual trench war Mm -hmm. (laughs) right because then everybody loses but that 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 doesn't happen for a, a while there's things that happen in the meantime you know that make that not necessarily an inevitable outcome but that'll be for next time okay yeah to be continued Zach Hagedon is the editor-in-chief of the Sandpoint Reader. You can read all of the articles in his Timber Wars series online at sandpointreader.com and watch for the series conclusion sometime in the fall. We'll pick up this conversation where we left off when the article goes to press. This has been Your Wild Place, a podcast presented by Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. For more information about the Friends, visit our website, scotchmanpeaks.org. This episode featured Zach Hagedon and was edited by me, Jack Peterson. Theme music by Ben Olson and Katie Archer. Subscribe to Your Wild Place wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, give Your Wild Place a like and review.